Well, good morning, everyone, and thank you again for being here uh, this morning. It is a blessing to have you with us today and uh, grateful for your presence. So uh, here at the Matsudo Church, we have been doing a series on the parables of Jesus. And uh, today's parable is quite short. Um, and in many ways, it's easy to understand. Because the first and the last words clearly explain the meaning of the parable. However, the parable is interesting, I think, because it addresses two different kinds of people. It addresses both the highly religious people and very worldly people. It addresses those who we might say have grown up in church, um, they know the Bible, but it also addresses those whose lives have been mostly outside the church, focused on money and on success and things like that. So this parable speaks to all kinds of people, and so it kind of steps on all of our toes. It sort of offends everybody in some ways. And for those reasons, <clears throat> because it's very straightforward and because it's kind of offensive to everybody, I think it's also a parable that's sort of easy to overlook. Now we look at it and we say, okay, be humble, don't be arrogant, great. That's fair enough, okay? But we really need to avoid that temptation and consider this parable deeply, because this parable tells us something very important about the gospel. Now, the basic premise of most religions, of pretty much any religion, really, is this. If you do things the right way, if you search well, and if you think well, and you do things the right way, you'll get closer to truth, you'll get closer to the divine, to God, right? But the gospel tells us a very different story, and that's what this parable shows us. Now, on the surface of, of the parable, we see two very different lives, two people that could not be more different from each other. And Jesus takes those two lives in a very unexpected direction, which causes us to ask a big question about God and about salvation. And by asking that question, we are introduced to something that is central to the gospel, and to faith. <clears throat> and so that's how I want to think about this parable today, by considering those three points. This morning we'll be thinking about this parable by considering two different lives, one big question, and the heart of the gospel. Okay, two different lives, one big question, and the heart of the gospel. So first, two different lives. So we're introduced in this parable to two people who, as I said, are just completely different from each other. One is a Pharisee, and one is a tax collector. So let's think about these individuals for just a moment. So first, the Pharisee. So in the first century, there were two major Jewish groups, Jewish sects. Okay? There were the Sadducees, and there were the Pharisees. Now, the Sadducees were, in some ways, maybe in modern language, we might say kind of the more liberal of the two. They were certainly more secular. Uh, the Sadducees rejected traditional interpretation of the law. So the kind of traditions and the oral, uh, oral traditions that existed, they rejected those. And they may have even rejected certain Old Testament books. They also rejected the existence of the soul or certainly of the resurrection from the dead. They basically thought this life is all that there is. And so because of that, they were, of course, very secular and they focused only on success 
and, you know, good things in this life. The Pharisees, however, were a much stricter group. The Pharisees had a long list of oral traditions that interpreted the law of Moses, and all of these rules had to be obeyed in great detail. Uh, The Pharisees did believe in an afterlife. They did believe in resurrection from the dead. But you could only enjoy that. You only had a hope of that if you were righteous. And you were only righteous if you kept God's law in exactly the right way. So basically, the Pharisees were not just good rule keepers, but they were good rule makers. Okay? They didn't just keep the law. They made the law in a sense. So a pious Pharisee, a dedicated Pharisee, would go above and beyond to do even more than what the law required. They wanted to do the most extreme amount that they could if they were a very pious, dedicated Pharisee. And as we see in, the, in this parable itself and also elsewhere in the Gospels, that included many things. It included what days you fasted on and how long you fasted. It included the tithe. Uh, but not just of your money. So, um, you know, the tithe is, of course, an offering of 10% of whatever you have. And in modern times, we would think of that as 10% of your income. But the Pharisees did not just tithe money. It wasn't just money. They tithed everything. Um, They would tithe even the things that they purchased because their concern was, if I purchased this and the person I bought it from did not tithe it, then I need to tithe what they did not tithe. And so they would do that just to be safe. And they would, they would include even, as we see later in the Gospels, we see um, they would include tithing even their food, even their spices, right? So even from their spice cabinet, they would take 10% of that. And that's what a zealous Pharisee would do in order to obey the law. They wanted to make sure that they were obeying God's law perfectly, So this was a very strict group with a very strict view of how to obey God. And they were very well respected in Jewish society. They were looked up to because they were so pious. They were so religious and focused on God. And that's the kind of Pharisee that we see in in this parable today. He keeps all the laws down to the finest point. When, When he says he gives a tithe of everything he gets, he probably doesn't just mean money. He's talking about 10% of his salt 10% of his olive oil. I mean, 10% of everything, right? He fasts twice a week, every week, on exactly the right days at exactly the right hours. He keeps the Sabbath perfectly, making sure to never do any kind of work on the Sabbath. He would certainly never cheat on his wife. Um, He would never cheat others in, in like business. He would never steal something from people and so on. So the Pharisee in this parable is, at least in his mind, one of those righteous people. He's a righteous man. He has his life together and he works hard to obey God. And the thing is, he's good at it. On the other hand, we have the tax collector. Now, tax collectors were basically the opposite of the Pharisees. Okay? If Pharisees were respected, then tax collectors were hated. Tax collectors were seen as greedy traitors. Uh, Now, you have to understand, a tax collector did not get this job by chance. It wasn't just accidental. It wasn't assigned to them by somebody. Tax collectors would actually bid for the right to collect taxes for a certain area. So they would be wanting to be the tax collector of a certain area. So if they were there, it's probably by their design. They they tried to get that. Um, And that's why they were considered traitors, because they intentionally 
worked for the powers that were oppressing the people, right? Um, and in fact, they would oppress the people themselves because they would make profit on these taxes. So, in, you know, the, the government, they didn't care what the tax collector did. They just wanted to make sure they got their money. So if the government got their taxes, they didn't care. And so this tax collector could kind of do small things here and there, cheat people, lie about things. Nobody would be able to tell them different. And so and even if they did, he could make their lives even harder. And so, you know, he would take that extra money and he'd make a kickback. And so he made a lot of money and the tax collectors would become very rich, not only helping the Roman government, but helping themselves too. So they didn't just help the oppressor. They themselves were oppressors. Now, some ancient Jewish writings, for that reason, actually put tax collectors in the same category as murderers and um, as, uh, as robbers, right? So that's how, that's how sinful they were seen. Um, they were just so dishonest, they weren't even allowed to give a testimony in court because it was complete, just assumed they would lie, right? That's how, that's how dishonest these guys were. So maybe as a modern example, uh, maybe imagine that you live in Ukraine, and maybe an area of Ukraine right now that's controlled by Russia. And imagine someone in your town decides that they're going to collect taxes for Russia and maybe even give them extra information so that that person can become rich. You, they probably would be pretty hated, right? That person's going to be hated by everybody in the town. That's basically what tax collectors were like. They were just hated by everybody. So you can see how completely different these two people are, okay? Completely different people. On one hand, you have a religious leader who is zealous. He loves to do what's right. He wants to do what's right. He's someone who has studied God's law. He works hard to do everything exactly the right way, even when it's very inconvenient, right? It's not necessarily easy for him, but he still does it. On the other hand, you have a greedy traitor who's willing to get rich no matter how many people it hurts. Now, just looking at that on the surface... Which one do you think is the one God approves of? I mean, obviously, right? It's the Pharisee. Of course it is. That's the way we're going to think of it. If you're thinking, what's, who's, my, who's my, God's kind of person? When God looks and says, that's my guy, who does he look at and say that? Well, at the very least, we might say neither, maybe. You know, maybe a pessimistic kind of cynical person would say neither, maybe so. But at the very least, you certainly wouldn't say that it's the tax collector, Right? And I think most of us, and especially if we bring ourselves out of our modern context into Jesus' time, the obvious answer was the Pharisee. The Pharisee was God's person. The tax collector was not. The people in Jesus' day understood that. And that brings us to the second point, a big question. So we've seen two different people. Now we have a big question. Again, in Jesus' day, anyone would have clearly understood which person was right with God and which person was not it would have been immediately obvious that the Pharisee was righteous. And it would have been equally obvious, maybe more obvious, that the tax collector was a sinner without hope. See, it's not just that the tax collector was a sinner at that moment. That, that's part of the problem. But the tax collector had done so much wrong to so many people, and the effect of his sin had reached so far that he couldn't possibly make it right. It would just be impossible he had done so much wrong to so many people, and that effect had spread to so many people. There was no hope of forgiveness. It's not even possible for him. And yet, Jesus says in verse 14, it is the tax collector who leaves the temple right with God, and it is the Pharisee who leaves the temple separated from God. 
And you see, this then is the big question. It should be a big question to us. If it's not, when we're not really understanding the parable, okay? This should be a big question to us. Why? Why does the tax collector walk away justified and the Pharisee does not? Why on earth does Jesus say that the tax collector is good with God and not the Pharisee? Why is the person who works hard to do everything the right way in bad standing with God while the person who cheats and steals and lies walks away justified. Why? Now, again, you have to realize how completely shocking this reversal would have been for the people in Jesus' time. And it should still be shocking for us today if we think about it. Now, maybe if the image of a Pharisee or a tax collector seems too distant for us today, perhaps we might think of, you know, some famous pastor or something like that compared to like a crooked politician. Okay, so maybe this, this, this pastor, this preacher, whatever, he's studied the Bible all of his life, right? He leads worship every single week. He's always there. He's preaching. He's teaching. Maybe he has a, I don't know, a popular YouTube channel or something, um, right? He fasts and he prays even. He gives his money to the poor. He's leading a big church with lots of members. He does lots of, you know, of good for the community, He's never cheated on his wife. His children are faithful Christian. He's written popular books about following God, right? You look at that guy, you think, okay, that's, a, that's an upstanding guy. That's the kind of guy that God loves. And then think about there's a crooked politician who everyone knows is crooked. Everyone. The one who everyone knows they've stolen money. They've cheated and hurt other people to get to their position. This person is greedy. They abuse everyone just to stay in power, You know, this is the politician who constantly lies to everyone, the politician who uses their position to get rich. And imagine Jesus says, it's that guy. It's the crooked politician who goes home justified. How could he possibly say that? It doesn't make any sense. Now, we really need to wrestle with this question, okay? We we need to kind of push back against those kind of like easy answers that make us comfortable and really wrestle with this question. Because this is a big reversal. And if we don't get that, then we're not going to understand what Jesus is trying to show us here. Okay? And what Jesus is trying to show us here is something that is central to the gospel itself. Now, when we read this parable, I think there's a temptation to see the tax collector as actually a better rule follower than the Pharisee. Now, what do I mean? How how is the tax collector a better rule follower? Well, it's easy to look at this and think the tax collector... He just said the right kind of prayer. And if the Pharisee had said the right kind of prayer, he would have been justified too, right? So really the reversal is just that the tax collector actually followed the rules. That's kind of how we might want to see it, but that's not it. It's not about the words that they say. It's not even about necessarily a particular belief as much as it is about their heart. It's about their their disposition, their attitude when they come before God. You see, this parable isn't really about a righteous man and a sinner, but it's actually about two sinners. And we might call it that, actually, a tale of two sinners, okay? Maybe an easy way to remember it, a tale of two sinners. This isn't really about a good man and a bad man. It's about two uh, sinful people. Now, it's obvious, of course, the tax collector is a sinner. That's obvious. But the question we need to ask is, how is the Pharisee a sinner? What did the Pharisee do wrong? What did he do wrong according to the parable? Now, some assume that the Pharisee was actually not as righteous as he claimed he was, right? That he's kind of like hiding some sin. 
But that's not said in the parable. If we make that assumption, we're taking that information from outside the parable. In the parable, Jesus does not say that. Jesus does not deny the Pharisees' claims. Others think he was wrong for claiming to be righteous openly. But that's not the issue either, because David, if you read the Psalms, you'll see David many times throughout the Psalms write Psalms where he claims righteousness, right? Even Job claims that. I mean, we see this many times throughout the Bible, people openly saying they're righteous. So that's not the issue. I mean, that could be a problem, but that's not the issue by itself. So what is the problem? Well, the introduction and the closing statement answer that question. They tell us what the problem is. In verse 9, we're told this parable is intended for some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. And then in verse 14, the explanation is given. Everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, but the one who humbles himself will be exalted. So the Pharisee's problem is this. His focus on obedience and his focus on righteousness had turned into self-righteousness and hate towards others. Okay, let me say that again. His focus on obedience and on righteousness had turned into self-righteousness and hate towards others. Again, if we think about all the religions of man, man's religions, they tell us basically the same story. Okay, if you do things the right way, you'll find your way to God. God and truth are open to anyone if we just work hard enough or if we're smart enough to figure it all out. And you see, it's easy to turn Christianity into simply another religion of man. If I obey the right way, if I do and say everything exactly the right way, if I believe everything exactly the right way, then God will choose me. He'll love me because I'm good. I earned it. I'm good. I did it the right way. I worked hard. I studied his Bible. I was honest. And therefore, I'm saved. That's no different than the rest of the religions of man really at the base. Yes, the the specifics look different, but the basic premise ends up being the same. But you see, at the center of the gospel, the center of God's message is this, that I am a sinner in need of God's mercy. That is at the center of it. I am a sinner and I need God's mercy. And that concept of need, of needing God's mercy, needing God's forgiveness, needing God's grace and his patience, that idea is central to the gospel. The gospel says that we come to God not as good people with good hearts, but as broken people with broken lives full of sin. We come to God with nothing to offer. What we come to God with is need. That's what we come with. We come with need. And it is that message which the Pharisee in his heart did not understand or appreciate. See, the Pharisee in his heart doesn't really believe that he needs mercy. He doesn't really think that he does. Since he has done everything right, what's to forgive? If you do everything the right way, you don't need forgiveness. As we see in verse 9, this is what Jesus himself says. He trusted in himself that he was righteous. He trusts in his own righteousness, his own goodness. His trust was not in God's mercy or God's forgiveness or God's goodness but in his own ability to impress God through his own good works. He trusted that he understood it all perfectly and he obeyed it all perfectly. His worship was right, it was right, his life was right, and that earned him a place at God's table. And that in turn created scorn, it created hate for others who had not reached his level of goodness, 
And you see, that's what self-righteousness will do every single time. Self-righteousness always produces a sense of superiority to others. It always produces me thinking I'm better than other people. Because if I am able to figure it all out, and if I'm able to do it the right way, then the only reason other people don't is because they're not good like me. That can be the only difference, right? So I am, in fact, actually morally superior to other people. It's the truth. It's not, it's not you know, I'm trying to be self-righteous. It's just the truth. That's the way we think about it, or, or we can think about it. But this was the Pharisee's failure, and that is what caused him to walk away not justified. First, because he's self-righteous. He trusts in his own goodness instead of in God's goodness. And this is exactly, by the way, what Paul talks about in Romans 10. He talks about the Jews and he says, I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. Because what he says there, if you go back and read it there, he actually says, because what they're doing is they're trying to set up their own righteousness instead of trusting in God's righteousness. What they didn't understand wasn't some technicality. It was that God alone is good and not them. That's what they didn't understand. They're zealous for his law, just like this Pharisee, but not zealous for his goodness because they are trusting in their own. But the second issue for this this Pharisee is because of his self-righteousness, he thought he was better than others, and so he treats other people with hate and contempt. In his self-righteousness, he does not come to God with a heart of need, but rather he thinks, man, I sure am good. I must impress God. God must be really thinking I'm something special. That's the kind of attitude that he has. And so what he does is he excludes people from God's kingdom who God has not excluded. He says that person can't go into God's kingdom, but I can. But God has said, well, hold on a second. I didn't say he couldn't come in. And so the thing is, when we exclude people that God has not excluded, we are in danger of excluding ourselves from God. When we kick out other people who God has not kicked out, we are in danger of kicking ourselves out away from God. Okay, that is a great danger. And that's what this, this Pharisee shows us. Now, maybe that point we can understand. Okay, the Pharisees, he's self-righteous. Sure, I, I can get that. But on the reverse side, why did the tax collector walk away justified? Maybe I can understand, like I said, why the, why the Pharisee is not justified. But why is the tax collector justified? Now, again, it's not because he said the right prayer or understood some special secret that you know, other people didn't get. The tax collector walked away justified simply for this reason. Because he humbled himself before God and recognized his total need for God's mercy and forgiveness. That's it. He humbled himself before God and recognized his need for God's mercy and God's forgiveness. That is the difference between the two people. The Pharisee thought that he could impress God with his goodness, and so he really didn't think he needed anything from God. The tax collector, however, knew how sinful he was, knew how hopeless his situation was, and so he comes to God with complete humility, begging for God's forgiveness. And it's kind of ironic because what that means is that it's actually the tax collector who understood who God is, not the Pharisee. The Pharisee who spent all his time studying God's law doesn't understand God, and the tax collector does. Uh, John Calvin famously wrote that unless we know God, we can't know ourselves. 
He said that the more we understand God, the more we understand ourselves. And I think he's very right about that. And so what you see is that this Pharisee, despite all of his study, despite all of his hard work and his very detailed rule keeping, he didn't actually understand who God is, but it is the Pharisee who does, or it's the the tax collector who does rather, because the tax collector knows God is perfect. He knows God is holy. And so he can see his own sin and he knows that his only hope is begging for mercy. That's it. He knows that's his only hope. He has nothing to offer God. He can't impress God. He comes only with need. And that's exactly what God wants from us, is just to recognize our need for his mercy. And you see, if we understand who God is, we'll also come with that attitude and that heart. And that is the message of this parable to us. Do you want to know God? Do you want to be justified? Think about that word for a second, justified. That word means to be made right, to be made righteous. But I want you to notice something about that word. That word is passive. It's not something that we do, but rather something done to us. Do you see that? He walked away justified. He didn't justify himself. He walked away justified by who? By God. It's passive. It's not what we do. It's, what, it's something that's done to us. And that is the only way to become righteous. There is no other way to become righteous except God and Jesus Christ making you righteous. It is the only way. We become righteous not by justifying ourselves, but by being justified by God. And this parable shows us that path to justification by throwing ourselves on the mercy of God and trusting in him to make us righteous. Now, I might be able to be able to impress people with my pious acts, right? They might see my strict religious life and they might be impressed, but God is not impressed. It's said many times throughout scripture, God rejects the proud, but gives grace to the humble. At the same time, that doesn't mean we take God's mercy for granted. You see, God's mercy is transformative. That means it changes us. God's mercy changes us. It changes our hearts. And so a humble heart will not come to God asking for forgiveness and then walk away and just keep doing the same stuff without concern whatsoever. It doesn't mean there won't still be struggles, but we don't just walk away and say, well, I can just do whatever I want. He forgave me. That is not, if if you do that, then you have not truly understood God's mercy, right? So we don't take it for granted. And we also need to understand that the tax collector couldn't walk away from this proud. Sometimes we kind of think like the tax collector could walk away sort of patting himself on the back being like, yeah, I'm the one who has the right to be proud. No, no, not at all. Neither of these men have a right to be proud because both of them need God's mercy. That's the only thing we bring to God is our need. And that's what he wants us to understand. And so our attitude towards God should be one of gratitude, of thanks. But not like the Pharisee. The Pharisee gave thanks, right? But he gave thanks for how good he was, basically. Again, it's not real gratitude. It's more just like self-congratulation. You know, look how good I am. But rather, it's supposed to be gratitude for how merciful God is for, uh, to us, despite all of our sin. And we have to understand that sin comes in different forms. For the tax collector, his sin was the traditional version. You know, the moral kind, greed, cheating, you know, lust, things like that. But the Pharisee had the religious kind. Pride, self-righteousness, self-importance. And God wants us to repent of both. We need to repent of our moral sins, of the greed, the lust, the anger that's often in our hearts. 
Yes, just like the, the tax collector, we need to repent of those things. We need to turn from them. But we also need to repent of our pride and arrogance and thinking that we're so much better than everybody else. And so we also need to repent of our, our self-reliance, our self-righteousness as well. And we must simply realize this, how much we need God and his mercy and his grace. And thankfully, God gives us that in abundance. And that is why the gospel is good news. The fact is, we are sinners and we need God's mercy. And yet the story, the message of the gospel is this, that God has given that mercy in abundance in Jesus. He hasn't been stingy with it. He hasn't said, you know, I'll give you just a little bit. You know, I was, I was talking about this this morning a little bit with the, after Japanese worship, but I, I struggle with this sometimes. My mom sometimes sends us boxes, and she sends us stuff from America, and it's like snacks and stuff that's kind of special to us, and sometimes the kids take more of it than I want them to, and then I'm kind of upset because I'm like, hey, I wanted some of that, you know? And so I'm kind of stingy. I might be like, I'll tell you what, I'll give you guys like a little, little tiny bowl. You can have a little bit. The rest is mine. That's the way we are as humans, right? We're stingy. We're like, that's mine. God is not that way. With God's mercy and grace, he just pours it out, just pours it out to us. He's just, he's more like my mom, just sending box after box of stuff, you know, to us. That, that's, how, that's how God is. He's just giving us and giving us that abundance because he loves us. That doesn't mean we take it for granted, like I said, but we do have to understand that if we come to him with need, he will give in abundance because that's who he is. He wants to make us right. He wants to justify us. And so if we'll humble ourselves and beg for mercy, we know that he will give it to us. That's part of what it means to have faith in Jesus. It means to realize my need for Jesus' work through the cross and through his resurrection to make me right with God. And it's also part of what baptism is about. Baptism isn't just like the Pharisee here, I've got this rule and I'm doing it the right way. It's about coming before God and asking for his mercy through Jesus. Baptism is basically saying, God, I need your mercy and I need it through Jesus. It's a statement of that. It's, it's a testimony to that point. And when we do these things, when we will come to him with that, that heart of need, he gives us more righteousness than our silly efforts could ever produce. So we need only to come to him with that deep need. That's what God wants. And that's really the simple message of this parable. In a nutshell, the message is this. If we try to stand ourselves, we will fall. But if we fall on our knees before him, he will lift us up. Let's close with a prayer. Father, you know each one of us. You know how deeply sinful we are. You know all the sins that we have committed today, this week, this month, since we were born. You know every single sin. And Lord, you know how much we need you. And I pray that you would open our hearts so that we can see how much we need you. Lord, help us to repent of our sins. Help us to repent of our greed, our selfishness, our lust, our uh, impatience, our anger. But help us also to repent of our self-righteousness and our self-reliance, Father. Help us to remember how much we need you. And Father, I pray that as you promise, that you would fulfill your promise through your son Jesus and wash away all of our sins, cleanse us through his blood, and make us righteous in your sight through him. Father, that is our hope and that is our prayer. Thank you so much for giving us that abundant forgiveness through Jesus. 
We pray this in his name. Amen.